Welcome to Sci-Fi, the podcast for medical students and aspiring psychiatrists. Sustaining myself with instant ramen and dank memes, this is Jason, and I'm a core psych trainee at the Oxys NHS Trust in London. And as always, I have the human STD that is Maui with me. <laughs> you know, it would be really funny if Maui turns out to be a split personality of yours that neither you or the listeners have caught on to. Hmm, that sounds so improbable that it might be true. <laughs> but I am a mere clinical teaching fellow in the east of England. Or am I? Anyway, today we will finish off schizophrenia and psychosis in our second part, titled Schizophrenia and Psychosis, Prolactin would suggest the existence of amateur lactin. Amazing title, by the way. Yes, and totally grounded on a scientific evidence base. Anyhow, if any listeners have not done so already, check out our previous episode, which may help you understand today's episode a bit better. Not may, okay? Will. You gotta, you gotta sell it. You gotta sell our episodes to people. Where's your entrepreneurship spirit, man? Okay, I'll do that. Okay. Any- do you want me to redo it? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. <laughs> Leave it. It's too late. It's too late. We need that imp- improvisation, okay? Anyways... Today, though, we will cover the assessment, the test, and the management of psychosis and schizophrenia. Now that you know what schizophrenia and psychosis is, it is now time to apply this to the patient. With schizophrenia, it's equally likely to be male or female, with lifetime risk of around 1% for all. Although males can present younger around 15 to 25, with females presenting age 25 to 35, And it's rare for males to be diagnosed after 45, but some 10% of females are diagnosed after 45. You may hear this being called late onset schizophrenia. With late onset, a possible theory is that it's hormone related. So as women approach menopause, that sort of triggers something which leads to schizophrenia. Another interesting thing is to look at what month they were born in. How come? So I read a study, right? And when I say I read a study, I mean I skimmed the abstract. And when I say I skimmed the abstract, I meant the consultant asked me to read it, and I didn't, and then he explained it to me. (laughs) Whatever it is, um, if you're born between February to May, you may have an increased risk of around 10% of developing schizophrenia. A possible theory is that these babies get exposed to influenza while in the womb in the second trimester, and that affects their neurodevelopment but the jury's still out in that one. That sounds like a conspiracy, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I mean, lots of things sound conspiracy-ish until it's true. And then one day, somebody walks off the edge of the earth and we're like, oh shit, they were right. Okay, let's back up. (laughs) Let's imagine a typical day in psychiatry, right? Someone's been brought in by the police to be assessed because they have been harassing their neighbors, talking to themselves, and disturbing the public. You've been asked to see them. How would you start and what would you do? I guess first impressions are important. You would build rapport, get the patient to work with you um, as you do the detective work. I would probably ask an open question along the lines of, what do you think you, why do you think you're here? Yeah, don't go in thinking that they're crazy. It would affect the way you would interact and people pick up on these vibes no matter how unwell they are. When they talk about hallucinations or delusions, believe them, in the sense that you acknowledge that they feel it's real. 
So don't use words like so you think when you're recapping. How would you respond if they asked, you believe me, don't you? My go-to answer is, it sounds really strange, but I believe that you believe it. And this has made you afraid slash angry slash frustrated. Right, so you're not saying you should collude with the patient as such. Yes. In a way, the only person you need to lie to is yourself. Be genuinely curious and ask questions you normally would if you knew that what they were saying was real. See, I think when you start out, what and how you say things can be difficult to appreciate. So I think your example is helpful here. In the patient's shoes, hallucinations and delusions can be scary, and they may have awareness that these things are not normal, per se. So they might have insights. Exactly. And here I sometimes find it useful to introduce questions with, when people experience stress, they can start experiencing things that people don't normally do. Has anything happened that you find strange or hard to explain? In a way, you're almost normalizing it, or at least making them experience, uh, making their experience seem not so far-fetched. Yep. Another way may be to gently acknowledge and then ask about behaviors you observe the patient doing. Ah, uh, so if a patient seems distracted or is perhaps seemingly following an invisible object around the room, then you can say, you seem to look away every now and then. Is there something in the room? Yep, this is the whole Benadryl, cucumber bun, Sherlock deduction thing. You gotta not just see, but observe. You mean Benedict Cumberbatch? Same difference, man. Same difference. Try and get as much detail as possible if they're willing to play ball. With auditory hallucinations, especially if Schneider is to be believed, find out things like how many voices. Are the voice or voices familiar? Do they talk to you or about you? Do they comment on your actions? Do they argue? Do you hear them in your head? Or are they speaking into your ears? In terms of delusions, there are quite a few common types. If you listeners are expecting another list, you are correct. But don't bother memorizing these. Yes, the key bit of this is to know whether something is a delusion or not. I find that the terms are more to act as a common language between medical practitioners. But if you describe a delusion rather than using a more accurate eponym, I think that's okay. We've already mentioned passivity, thought interference, and delusional perception. Speaking of delusional perception, you might also sometimes hear delusions of reference used, which is fairly similar. The main difference is that while both derive meaning from an unrelated event, delusions of reference would have a personal meaning or association to the patient, as in referring to themselves in particular. Then you have delusions of jealousy, perception, and grandiosity. As the name implies, these relate to infidelity, paranoia, and exaggerated self-importance in that order. You have a counterpart to delusions of infidelity, also known as erotomania. Rather than thinking someone's cheating on you, you think that they really love you. So basically, my entire high school life. Oh no. <laughs> I've never seen this before, but I find delusions of doubles, as in imposters, pretty cool. The two being Capgrass and Frigoli. Capgrass is thinking loved ones are replaced by an identical imposter. Frigoli is thinking strangers are a familiar person. Yeah, sorry, I was just eating an orange. This is what I like about psychiatry, right? <laughs> so you have delusions that are on opposite sides of the spectrum, where facial recognition pathways in your brain gets messed up. 
And so the familiar becomes the unfamiliar and vice versa. It's not that we can't diagnose mental illness through investigations ever. We just can't do that yet. Because a lot of the changes in the brain happens on a very small or micro scale. Nihilistic and somatic delusions would probably be the last two to be aware of. Somatic refers to the body as in somatic delusions or believing something is wrong with the body medically. Nihilistic is perhaps more an extreme form of this when patients think they're literally dead or dying or have got rotten organs. Yep, and to recap, the aim of the history of presenting complaint is to understand as much of what's happening from the patient's perspective. Don't collude, but be empathetic and ask follow-up questions about hallucinations and delusions to test the conviction of these things. As I'm sure you expected, after history of presenting complaint comes past psychiatric history. What you are really interested in is substance abuse and depression. Substance abuse can coexist and cause uh, and can be a cause of psychosis. So a thorough drug and alcohol history needs to be done. Depression is important to identify as it is seen in half of patients with schizophrenia. And again, it can also be a cause of psychosis. Mm-hmm. Past risk informs future risk. And so knowing the type of mental health services they have engaged with before and how they presented during previous admissions will give you a good idea of what worked and what didn't. So while we're obviously psychiatry-oriented, don't skip out on the past medical history. There are certain physical conditions that mimic psychosis or cause it, as well as certain medications that can trigger psychosis. You're going to feel pretty bummed out if your patient that you diagnosed with schizophrenia turned out to have a brain tumour. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that is often overlooked is diagnostic uncertainty and the probability that ETS is the cause of the presentation. This is why exploring alternative causes as in the past medical history and risk factors is important. Mm -hmm. Schizophrenia is thought to have a genetic element and you can tease this out in the family history. For example, if your identical twin has schizophrenia, then you have a 50% chance of developing it. To play devil's advocate, could you not say that the environment is the cause here? Well, studies have shown that children with schizophrenic patients who were adopted by non-schizophrenic patients have a 10% risk of developing schizophrenia. So there is definitely a genetic component. However, the prevailing theory of schizophrenia development is a marriage of both genetic and environmental components. The risk or ease of schizophrenia developing is based on your genetic makeup and the environmental factors end up precipitating it. I look at it as the genetic factors being the bullet and the environmental factors being the trigger. Next up, you have two unique bits of the psychiatric history, the forensic and the personal histories. Find out if there's a history of violence, also if this is due to psychosis or just pre-morbid personality. For some of the patients I've seen, we do get calls from the police asking if the patients can attend court for some form of violence or property damage or assault. Here, you have to assess the patient's current mental state and also figure out whether their current presentations led to the crime or not. It's not surprising or for some people to fake some form of mental illness because they think they can avoid a conviction. But it's usually really obvious when someone is faking it and also really funny. 
Actually, that leads us onto something quite interesting, actually. What is the legality surrounding actions and crimes committed when affected by mental illness? Well, the short-form answer to that is that if they were mentally unwell, they may be deemed not guilty by reason of insanity or have diminished responsibility, leading to a lighter sentence. So I think the whole Mental Health Act and, and how we sort of make use of it would be too long to discuss here. So maybe in another episode. And the second last bit of the history, their personal history, uh, covers the circumstances of their birth leading up until now. How were they growing up? Has anything changed in their behavior or how people viewed them recently? Look out for prodromal symptoms. If somebody who was sociable, academically successful as a teen suddenly dropped out, that might be the cause. Ask about obstetric complications because malnutrition, viral infections, preeclampsia, and emergency C-sections have been associated with an increased risk of schizophrenia. Also, sexual and physical abuse is another risk factor and a very difficult topic to bring up sensitively. That's why it's always important to make them feel safe in a private setting and that they can trust you and open up to you. Last, we have the social history. As you might expect, there's always a common theme of socioeconomic deprivation in most mental illness. Yep, from prodrome to chronic phase, your ability to function continues to decline. And I think that's the most devastating thing about mental illness, that loss of who you thought you were and the things you could do before. Well, that was deep and unexpected. That's what she said, Hey. And we're back. <laughs> There's, there's been an ongoing debate about whether socioeconomic deprivation is a cause or effect of schizophrenia, and it's known as the breather versus drifter hypothesis. So it's called the drifter hypothesis because the theory is that schizophrenia causes social decline, driving them to cheaper inner-city accommodation as opposed to the socioeconomic problems leading to schizophrenia or, the, or breathing them. I think the main take-home message with this hypothesis is that you should explore patients' housing, employment, finances, and social support networks, as these may be areas where you can offer help. So, that's the history-taking part covered. I don't have much to say on the mental state examination side of things, but something that my registrar has hammered into me is that you shouldn't let their previous history seep into your mental state examination. Only mention hallucinations or delusions if these are elicited or mentioned during the consultation. And as always, insight is a useful measure for how likely the patient is to comply with their treatment regime. Mm -hmm. Before thinking about risk, don't forget the collateral history from their family or friends. Psychotic patients aren't really at their best, and so you can spend an hour getting a detailed history from them and then realizing that it's all untrue. Not completely pointless as you get an idea of how things seem from their perspective, but you should always take what patients say with, with a pinch of MSG. Hmm, gotta love that <laughs> MSG. Now, risk is broken down into three parts, risk to self, risk to others, and risk from others. There's the stigma that patients with schizophrenia are more dangerous to others. This is not true. Yeah, in fact, patients are at greater risk to themselves than others, such as through self-neglect or suicide. The lifetime risk of suicide is 10%, and is highest where insight is preserved and depression is present. The risk to others is possible, depending on the nature of delusions, command hallucinations, and insight. 
risk would be increased by past episodes of violence, current substance abuse, or, or coexisting dissocial personality disorder. For vulnerability, the numbers even suggest that individuals with schizophrenia are 14 times more likely to be a victim of violent crime than to be arrested for one. With delusions and negative symptoms affecting their social ability, it's not uncommon for schizophrenic patients to be involved in cults or radical movements. We had, we had a patient who was staying on the ward for some time, and some of their so-called friends turned the patient's flat into a cannabis garden. Oh, wow. Talking of cannabis, that leads us nicely onto differentials to consider for schizophrenia. As mentioned earlier, psychosis is not a standalone diagnosis. It is a presentation with an underlying cause. To make matters worse, other conditions can mimic psychosis. For differentials of schizophrenia, you should consider other causes of psychosis as well as conditions that can mimic psychosis. I like to group differentials into organic, drug-induced, or other psychiatric causes. As a rule of thumb, always consider organic causes before thinking about psychiatric causes. Spoken like a true medic, there is something called the diagnostic hierarchy, and you have to rule out the ones on top, which is the organic bits, before considering anything else. The three main organic causes that I would say to think about would be one, delirium, including medication side effects such as steroids and dopamine agonists. Number two, dementia, such as Lewy body or Parkinson's. And three, epilepsy, especially temporal lobe uh, epilepsy, where you get auras that can mimic hallucinations. Mm -hmm. If you want to be thorough, you could use the surgical sieve to think of others and structure your answer. But I wouldn't go through learning the hundreds of possible causes. But it's just so that if you do pick up clues in the history, you have to consider these physical health causes. If you don't already know, the surgical sieve helps think of differentials when you are stuck or there is a huge list to remember. Why is it called the surgical sieve, by the way? Not a clue, mate. If anyone knows, please hit us up on Twitter. Smooth. Yeah, so I tried looking this up on the internet. But there doesn't seem to be an answer. It seems that the surgical sieve has always been and always will be. I like the acronym Vitamin CDEF, which stands for, and Mali, this is your feel, kind of, so please chip in. So, V, vascular causes. Such as stroke. I, infection. Encephalitis, syphilis, HIV. Yep, or any infection, as these may cause delirium as well. T, for trauma. Bang. Head injury. Yep. Uh, A. Autoimmune. Autoimmune encephalitis. M. Metabolic. Wilson's disease. Porphyria. We're going into the weird and wonderful stuff now. Um, I. Iatrogenic or caused by us. <laughs> Mentioned these already. Steroids and dopamine agonists. N. Neoplastic. Brain tumors. C. Congenital or sort of born with it. I guess epilepsy, although this can also be acquired. Yeah, we've sort of been a bit of a stretch now. Um, D, degenerative. Dementia. E, endocrine. Thyroid disease. And F, for functional. Or in other words, no obvious cause is found. So that's your vitamin C, D, E, F. After organic causes is drug-induced psychosis. Drugs can cause psychosis either through their actions or through their absence. In other words withdrawal symptoms. The four main categories of drugs that can cause this include uppers and stimulants, 
So cocaine, amphetamine. Downers or depressants? Like alcohol or opioids? Hallucinogens. Such as LSD or phencyclidine, also known as angel dust. Yep. And a fourth one, cannabinoids or cannabis. The story of cannabis and schizophrenia is interesting, right? Yeah, there's ongoing debate about whether drug-induced psychosis, especially cannabis-induced psychosis, is its own unique thing or just a trigger for schizophrenia later in life. Something like 10-11% of cannabis users experiencing a psychotic episode are later diagnosed with schizophrenia. I think people have tried to explain this with theories. There appears to be an association between heavy cannabis use as a teenager and a six-fold increased risk of schizophrenia. It's important to stress that this is association and not causation. Although neurodevelopmental theories about developing brains do have a stab at explaining these. So I'm just going to move on to psychiatric differentials, which is my favorite part. A good way to think of these is as number one, mood disorders. Number two, schizophrenia-like conditions. And number three, other stuff that don't fit in these categories. With affective or mood disorders, if the episode is severe enough, patients develop psychotic symptoms in line with their emotions. So depressed people would have delusions of guilt or nihilistic delusions that they're either dead or dying, and manic patients would have delusions of grandeur. Then we have schizoaffective disorders, which are an equal mixed schizophrenia and mood disorders. How does schizoaffective disorder differ from a diagnosis of schizophrenia and a mood disorder? I know this sounds confusing because it's confusing to me too. Because now you have mood disorders with psychotic symptoms, schizoaffective disorders, and schizophrenia, which can present with mood issues as well. The thing that separates them would be looking at the symptoms which predominate and the timing of onset. I honestly would just leave it to the big boss or the consultant or the registrar while you sort of develop an experience and a feel for these things. And the other schizophrenia-like condition is schizotypal disorder. I don't think students need to know much about this. Could you summarize it in one or two sentences? Yep, let me think. So... Schizotypal disorder is regarded as a personality disorder in the DSM-5. As the name suggests, it shares features with schizophrenia, including eccentric behavior and unusual thinking. Some consider it on the schizophrenia spectrum, as some patients go on to develop schizophrenia. I have said schizophrenia more times today than I have ever said it in my entire life. And now it sort of sounds <laughs> weird on the tongue. Uh, but you know. Same here. The other conditions include things like acute and transient psychosis. Again, you don't need to know much about this. Mm -hmm. As the name implies, it's a rapid onset psychosis, lasting days to less than a month, following a trigger like extreme psychological stress. Unlike schizophrenia, the content of the delusions and hallucinations change from day to day, or even hour to hour. To recap all that... Differentials for schizophrenia can be organic, drug-induced, and psychiatric causes. The key is to have a structure to remembering these, whether it be the surgical sieve or something else. Think about delirium, dementia, and epilepsy with organic. Think about four drug groups in drug-induced psychosis. And you could consider psychiatric differentials as mood disorder, schizophrenia-like conditions, 
or others like acute and transient psychosis. Once you have some differentials in place, we move on to investigations. I like to think of the two main purposes of investigations as firstly, to exclude these differentials, and secondly, in preparation for treatment. Yep, you could group investigations into bedside ones, blood tests, imaging, and others. At the bedside, urine tests are always important to look for dodgy drug use and also to rule out a urine infection, especially in elderly patients. If you're suspecting epilepsy, do an EEG and a routine ECG prior to starting antipsychotics. With bloods, you may do full blood count, CRP, urea and electrolytes, liver function tests, thyroid function tests, HIV and syphilis serology for differentials, and perhaps lipids prior to commencing long-term antipsychotics. Imaging can be considered if you suspect a brain structural abnormality. In other words, a CT scan or an MRI of the head. It is good practice for first episode psychosis patients to have brain imaging in order to rule out an organic cause. Also, if you haven't gotten enough detail from the social history, an activity of daily living assessment and looking at employment, finances, and housing will always be useful to figure out the support they need on discharge. After investigations and diagnosis comes management. As discussed in the first episode, a biopsychosocial approach is key. Ooh, um, exam pro tip. Whenever they ask about psychiatric management, always start by saying you would take a biopsychosocial approach and most examiners will go into autopilot because it seems like you know what you're talking about. A key aim of treatment is limiting what's called the duration of untreated psychosis, or DUP. In other words, the time delay between the first definitive psychosis symptoms and commencing some kind of effective treatment. Indeedy do. The longer the duration, the greater the damage to their cognition or insight or social circumstances. And the aim is to keep the duration of untreated psychosis or DUP to less than three months. So beginning with the bio of biopsychosocial, it makes sense that if you are psychotic, the drug of choice would be an antipsychotic. Here, it is worth appreciating how these meds work, their types, and the side effects. With the pathophysiology of psychosis and mood disorders, a lot of it centers around neurotransmitter theory. For psychosis, that would be too much dopamine or serotonin, or too little excitatory amino acids such as glutamate and aspartate. For now, we're going to focus on dopamine and serotonin, as this is what most antipsychotics affect. There are two main categories of antipsychotics. First, you've got the typicals or the first generation ones, and then you have the atypicals or second generation ones. Which is a little ironic, because with time, the typicals have fallen out of favor, and the atypicals have become more typical than the typicals. Mm-hmm. Typicals are things like chlorpromazine, haloperidol, flupentitzel, or clopitzel, as I think the trade name is. Whereas atypicals include stuff such as risperidone, aripiprazole, amisulpride, and some of the ones that end in peen, like lanzapine, quetiapine, and clozapine. There are other non-antipsychotic drugs ending with peen, such as amlodipine. For anyone listening that's on that, don't worry. Your GP started that for blood pressure, not because they secretly think you're a psychotic. <laughs> also, 
don't worry about memorizing these things too much. When you have a psych attachment and build up experience, you will eventually be able to identify the typicals from the atypicals. I'll be banking on Maoli's neuroscience degree to add on and correct me if I say anything stupid, but these antipsychotics, they all act as dopamine antagonists, reducing the overall effect of dopamine. Exactly. And if you want to get all technical, the main difference between typicals and atypicals is that atypicals have more serotonin receptor antagonism. This may be why they are more effective in treating the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. From someone who does this job for a living, ideally we shouldn't be using typical antipsychotics anymore. But you might find the odd person on it if they have had it before, or sometimes certain typicals have less of a metabolic side effect, but not by very much. Unfortunately, the problem with these neurotransmitters is that they have so many functions around the body, and like spilt cinema popcorn, it gets everywhere, causing unintended effects. Talking about antipsychotics, would you use them in drug-induced psychosis? I think the rule of thumb is that it depends on severity. If they are at a risk to themselves and others, they might need it. Otherwise, we can usually wait and the drugs should eventually wash out of their system. So in terms of side effects of antipsychotics, you got to think about both common as well as uncommon or rare but life-threatening. It's worth saying that when we say common, this still means for every 1% of drug administrations or upwards. The five common side effects are firstly your extrapyramidal side effects or EPSCs, second the metabolic, third the sedation, and fourth the anticholinergic effects, and five your hyperprolactinemia. Yep, so I'm going to talk about extrapyramidal side effects, and this might seem like a bit of a lengthy explanation. But I think once you know where the terms come from, it's easier to understand, right? So bear with me. The term pyramidal of extrapyramidal refers to the pyramids in the medulla oblongata, which contains the corticospinal and corticobulbar tracts. And true to their name, they go from the cortex of the brain to the spine and to the medullary area, also known as the bulbar regions to innervate the cranial nerves in your head and face. So these tracks control voluntary movement and the extra pyramidal tracks more or less fine-tune and regulate the coordination of movements, including balance and posture. So antipsychotics negatively affect the fine-tuning and coordinating bit of motion, leading to four side effects, which I remember as T-PAD, T-P-A-D. Starting with T, uh, T is tardive dyskinesia, which is rhythmic involuntary movements of your face, limbs, and trunk. So sometimes you see this as little twitches or sort of the jabbing of the tongue in and out. Um, and then next you have P, the Parkinson's symptoms. So I remember the Parkinson's symptoms with the mnemonic trap. And yes, I know I'm, already, I'm talking about a mnemonic within a mnemonic, but I just can't help myself. So trap for Parkinson's symptoms stand for tremor, rigidity, akinesia or bradykinesia, so slowing movement or no movement, and P, Parkinson's shuffle. The A stands for akathisia, which is spelled A-K-A-T-H-I-S-I-A. This is the subjective feeling of restlessness and may be seen as, for example, leg shaking. D is for dystonia. These are involuntary, painful, sustained muscle spasms. 
and include neck and oculogyric crises. Yeah, I've seen oculogyric crises. That's where sort of your your eye muscles tense up and then your eyes sort of twist up. Mm. For both Parkinsonism and acute dystonia, you can treat them with anticholinergics. This is usually procyclidine. But for akathisia and targeted dyskinesia, all you can often do is decrease the dose or completely change the antipsychotic in question. Yep, and that covers EPSEs. And now, um, as the name suggests, uh, metabolic side effects are weight gain, diabetic risk, and dyslipidemia, or sort of high cholesterol levels. Hmm. Patients with schizophrenia have about a 15-year reduction in the life expectancy, and this is a big reason why. To overcome the side effects of sedation, we tend to give most antipsychotics at night. The exception to this is aripiprazole, which can make patients feel more alert. Mm-hmm. And then next we have the anticholinergic side effects. So you find that the anticholinergic side effects are mostly focused on the anti-muscarinic part. So basically reduce parasympathetic nervous system action or your rest and digest system. So the usual stuff you get from parasympathetic innovations such as generating more saliva, slower heart rate, peeing or pooing, that all shuts down and that leads to dry mouth, blurry vision, urinary retention, tachycardia, so quick heart rates, constipation, and confusion or dizziness. Finally, hyperprolactinemia is something to watch out for. The body runs on a negative feedback mechanism and it's a bit of a pain to follow, but bear with me. So dopamine receptor blockage by antipsychotics lead to prolactin release because dopamine inhibits prolactin. And so when prolactin releases, that inhibits gonadotrophin releasing hormone, which helps to release sex hormones such as uh, FSH and LH. Um, and that goes down. Those levels go down and the overall decrease uh, in the sex hormones lead to lower estrogen and androgens. Right, so these changes lead to changes like reduced libido, sexual dysfunction, infertility, and even osteoporosis. For females, you'll get amenorrhea, or in other words, you stop having periods. And for men, gynecomastia, or man boobs in essence. I like to call them moobies. A lot of non-compliance and people discontinuing their antipsychotics comes down to sexual dysfunction and the growth of boobies, which is pretty <laughs> understandable. <laughs> oh my god! What? I'm so sorry. What's happening? No, I'm just going to mute myself. You continue, you continue. Fine. <clears throat> the decision to start an antipsychotic is not easy. And while psychotic episodes... <laughs> Two grown adults. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Let, let, okay, okay. Clear brain, clear heart. All right. <clears throat> the decision to start an antipsychotic is not easy. And while psychotic episodes worsen lives, so do the side effects. But you have to choose the less terrible option, I suppose. The rare but life-threatening side effects can be remembered with snap. Oh, snap! Dude, I thought mnemonics were my thing. Mate, please. Uh, so the S in SNAP stands for seizures. All antipsychotics lower the seizure threshold, especially clozapine. N stands for neuroleptic malignant syndrome. 
this is thought as, uh, or this is thought to be an extreme response to dopamine antagonism. And the three key features are altered consciousness, uh, muscle spasms, and autonomic dysregulation, which is just a fancy way of saying fevers, fast heart rate, and blood pressure all over the place. If you pick up that a patient has neuro- neuroleptic malignant syndrome, shit yourself and get them urgently to hospital as they may require intensive care and there's not much you can do at that point so much poo poo so much poo poo (laughs) a stands for a granulocytosis or low white cells in particular the neutrophils which is seen only with clozapine without having to say clozapine must be stopped in if this happens yep the p stands for prolonged qtc or corrected qt interval which can lead to arrhythmias, and that's why you should always do a baseline ECG to make sure that their initial QTC is normal, and so that they can be started on an antipsychotic without a fear of making it worse. So as a quick recap, there are common side effects and uncommon or rare ones to be aware of. The five common ones are, firstly, it's pyramidal side effects, second, metabolic, third, sedation, fourth, anticholinergic effects, and five, the hyperprolactinemia. Hence the title of this podcast. The uncommon and rare ones can be remembered with O-SNAP. So seizures, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, agranulocytosis, and remember that's only for clozapine, and lastly prolonged QTC. Now that you know a few antipsychotics and their side effects, how do you go about choosing the one for your patient? So NICE guidelines recommend for us to use atypical antipsychotics as first line. For the type of atypical, there's no hard and fast rule, and the two things it comes down to is a question of compliance and side effects. If a patient isn't compliant, which is usually the case when they're agitated or paranoid, you would have to go for a rapid-acting intramuscular injection, such as IM eripiprazole or olanzapine. However, in the acute setting of agitation where things might get dicey, The rapid tranquilization of a patient can be done with benzodiazepines like lorazepam, antihistamines like promethazine, haloparadol, or olanzapine. Right, and patients may not have insights or may just forget to take their medications after discharge. That's where the long-acting injectables come in with their once-monthly injections. This sort of monthly injection preparations can include olanzapine, aripiprazole, and risperidone. Risperidone depots not only come in monthly preps, but also three-monthly, which people who can tolerate it prefer, seeing as it does not disrupt their daily life too much. Another thing I like to say about compliance is that it is sometimes the little things. I had a teen psychotic patient who just wouldn't take their tablets and kept spitting it out. They were too paranoid to give us a coherent answer, and we were thinking of having to use an injectable. I then found out from their parents that the tablet swallowing has always been an issue for them since young. So we just switch it to a liquid preparation and boom, problem solved. Good detective work. When choosing antipsychotics, side effects are also something to keep in mind. I think this is the bit that I was confused about in medical school, just because it's hard to find a straight answer from textbooks. So here's my understanding of it. Risperidone is known to more likely cause high prolactin, and olanzapine and clozapine causes more weight gain and metabolic side effects, which is a shame because they are both really, really effective. I've seen aripiprazole used very commonly, especially in young people. Why is that? 
So aripiprazole is an atypical, atypical, but it's not, that doesn't mean it's typical. Uh, and its side effect profile is actually a lot better than the rest of the atypical antipsychotics, including reduced EPSEs, hyperprolactinemia, and less metabolic side effects. The only downside may be that it is not as effective as the heavy hitters we talked about before. Alrighty, so you have picked out the antipsychotic of your choice. Where do you go from there? The main principle to follow is to use the minimum effective dose with the least restrictive option. You don't need to know the details of dosing, but generally speaking, you may give an antipsychotic uh, a standard dose for two to three weeks. If that doesn't help with symptoms, you may increase the dose and try this for another two to three weeks. If that doesn't work, switch it and repeat this process. If still no luck, then you've arrived at treatment-resistant schizophrenia territory. This is where clozapine comes in, right? So clozapine is a second-line atypical antipsychotic and a very effective drug with the risk of severe side effects as discussed above. Monitoring requirements are also really stringent because of this, and having to get blood tests every week is not a pleasant thing. There's also no depot preparation or injection, so you have to make sure that they're willing to comply with it or it won't work. I would say the main take-home message in the last couple of points is that, firstly, NICE recommends using an atypical antipsychotic for first-line therapy. Second, IM preparations can be considered if your patient requests or if compliance is an issue. Then, if it's treatment-resistant schizophrenia, you go for clozapine. And remember, don't forget uh, about side effects in the decision-making process. Yep, very well said. With the bio part over, we move on to the psychology bit of management. There are three main types of therapies that have been proven to be useful. CBT, concordance therapy, and family therapy. So with CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, we've talked about CBT briefly in the previous episode, but just to recap, this is centered about around how thoughts, feelings, and behavior influence each other. For schizophrenia, this focuses on reality testing delusions and relieving auditory hallucinations and treating them as negative automatic thoughts. It also helps with self-esteem and problem solving, like how you would use it in depression. With concordance therapy, you aim to educate and empower patients and their relatives. You talk about the nature of schizophrenia and how it is managed. Through this, you aim to tailor medications and improve compliance. I would say that this is probably one of the crucial differences in starting medications in psychiatry as opposed to general medicine, where patients more often than not would willingly comply with their med regime. Instead of just telling them to follow instructions, we need to spend time with the patient and relatives because dealing with schizophrenia is not easy. And us guiding them through the process would help alleviate their fears and show them that they are being supported. Hmm. Family plays an important part in the process as well. Schizophrenia patients are more likely to relapse if they have families with highly expressed emotions, such as hostility, critical comments, emotional over-involvement. I've seen this typically in Asian families. Oh no. What? I'm sorry, but that's not making the edit. You can't perpetuate stereotypes like that. Okay, that's fair enough. But let me just clarify to the audience, right? We are both Asian. Yes. Do you have overbearing parents? No comment. Do you like papadums? Uh, why? 
You definitely have, and you definitely do. Do I have overbearing parents? For sure. And do I eat a lot of rice? Yes, bordering on pre-diabetes. I rest my case that stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason. It's not, it's not a blanket statement for everyone, but it is common, alright? In some families of no specific ethnicity, there is a lot of pressure, both directly and indirectly from the family and relatives. This can be a push to regain their former selves or the reluctance to accept the diagnosis because of the stigma that comes with mental illness. I think what you're trying to say is that family therapy can be important in management. This consists of education, communication training, and support for both the patient and their relatives. Lastly, but definitely not least, we have the social aspects of management. When you're planning discharge, it's very important to put adequate social support in place, such as do they have a house? Are they receiving money? Are you supporting them in their plans for the future? The ultimate hope of management is to return patients to functioning status in the least restrictive environment possible. Here, rehab psychiatry focuses on quality of life. It is a long-term approach considering finances or benefits, housing, interpersonal skills training, day-to-day skills such as budgeting or cooking, and education or employment. And now we've talked about management, it's follow-up time. You have successfully treated an acute episode. What do you need to put in place after discharge? Well, longer-term use of antipsychotics needs monitoring and review for side effects. This may include blood pressure, BMI, ECGs and blood such as HbA1c or lipids for cardiovascular and metabolic side effects, as well as prolactin levels for hyperprolactinemia and full blood count for agranulocytosis with clozapine. This is initially on a weekly basis and gets less frequent with time. With that said, I have seen patients who remain on weekly blood tests for a whole year instead of the usual 18 weeks because they couldn't stick to the regime. You can imagine that getting jabbed every week for that long a time is not very nice to say the least. In terms of who follows up in the community, we usually get to, you know, we usually get the GPs to monitor physical health. Well, community mental health teams such as early intervention services for psychosis work to prevent relapses. In the community, patients are often allocated a care coordinator or CCO who would act as the first port of call and to manage the different aspects of their care. So you've heard all about the management. How does the prognosis look? Well, sadly, only one quarter of patients recover and have no further episodes. Two-thirds may relapse and one-tenth are seriously disabled with ongoing symptoms. The common belief that mental illness is untreatable or all in your head is not true. And there is an indescribable feeling of satisfaction in seeing someone regain their former selves after a psychotic episode and then staying that way. For me, and obviously I might be biased, but I think mental health really affects your life experience because no matter how physically healthy you are, It makes no difference if you can't live a fulfilling life. You know, for some medical students, I, you may not be sold on psychiatry initially, but try to keep an open mind. It is a interesting and rapidly developing specialty. And I think every, every other sort of specialty, medical or surgical, in terms of a practice could be improved if you know a bit of psychiatry and how you sort of try to reach patients. 
And that about wraps up the second half of schizophrenia and psychosis. To recap the key points, treat schizophrenia patients with the same amount of empathy that you would if these delusions or hallucinations were actually happening. Get details about the nature of the delusions and hallucinations, as well as the presence of further positive or negative symptoms. The choice of antipsychotics is dependent on side effect profile, as well as patient compliance, and clozapine is really effective, but has rare, life-threatening side effects. Psychological therapies are also beneficial, and the main aim is to get these patients to integrate back into society as well as they can. If you've made it this far, thank you for listening. As always, we would love to hear from you, and now you can reach us in more ways than ever. Yep, messages on Twitter at Phi Podcast, P-H-I Podcast, like us on Facebook at Sci-Fi Podcast, or email us at questions4pp at gmail.com. That's the number four and double letter P's. Let us know if you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for upcoming episodes. We look forward to meeting you in our next episode in about two weeks' time. I'm gonna be honest, the next episode may be delayed as I have a lot of anime to catch up on this season. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe, and again, thanks to Kevin McLeod for the intro and outro music. Until next time, stay safe. Also, I don't know if people are being rebellious, but go out there and try Malaysian food. The national dish, nasi lemak, it will change your freaking life. Once again, thank you very much everyone for listening. Take care. Alright, bye. Thank you.